Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students of the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, David Wu, and today's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Judy Kachoya, who is an interventional radiologist at Emory University in Atlanta. In today's episode, we talk about how Dr. Kachoya's journey to AI and medicine began in Kenya, where she participated in building OpenMRS, the world's leading open source EMR platform. We will also talk about her work in using AI to combat bias and social injustices in medicine and the importance of diversifying the data sets we use in AI work today. I learned a lot in this interview and I hope you all enjoy. Thank you. Hey guys, today my guest is Dr. Judy Gachoya from the Emory University Radiology Department. Um, Judy, if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us about your work and what you do. Hey, David, thank you for inviting me to uh, today's podcast. I'm an interventional radiologist here at Emory University, and we are based out of Atlanta, and I also have a dual appointment with informatics. So half of my time I spent as an interventional radiologist and the other time with informatics. Oh, cool. Um, I also know that you're from Kenya too, right? Yes, my home is Kenya. I'm a very late immigrant. I actually went to medical school in Kenya, then moved to the U.S. for radiology residency. And then um, I'm just completing my first year. I just completed my first year as an attending, as a first year attending at Emory University. That's so cool. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm also a a child of immigrants. Um, And yeah, I guess I should let the audience know I actually how I uh, found you was through uh, Sanford AIMI, the, uh, I guess the Institute for AI and Medical Imaging. They had a, a fireside chat and then you were hosting it with Andrew Ng. And I thought you were a really cool speaker, really interesting person. And I really enjoyed uh, the anecdotes that uh, you and Andrew talked about. And uh, I was hoping if you could talk a little about that too. Yeah, you know, it was surprising because, um, you know, when when you sort of interview with these giants of AI, you don't expect them to be very attentive. But I was very surprised. So actually, Andrew called me before before we went on stage and virtual stage. And, you know, he said, I want to know about you, which was, I think, a very humbling question and actually very sincere. And so, you know, I said that my journey to working really in informatics, not necessarily AI, came from my early clinical days. And uh, this is because, you know, my, I mean, I was always doing some IT things, but they've always revolved around solving a a problem. So my early clinical, my early uh, medical school days, we were just too lazy to share movies. And so I ended up connecting all these computers so we could easily transfer movies and you know, uh, books and music together. And so would grow and, and ended up com- connecting quite a bit of computers this way. And so, oh, nice. yeah, when I went to the clinical years, you know, and, and I don't know. Um, so growing up, we usually have this graded uh, learning where you have like the days you can use a pencil, then you can graduate to a pen. And I had the same feeling in medical school when, you know, you finally get to where the, you start your lab coat, you put on your stethoscope. Uh, it just has this um, feeling. And you walk to the inpatient units, you know, in Kenya we call them wards. And, you know, you just come out so deflated because whatever you had always imagined was, was, was not the reality that you found in the wards. You know, I found it that we would never figure out who needed, who, you know, where the labs were, the clinical documentation. And so, you know, something that is very recurrent in my life, right place, right time, then there were these, uh, med, you know, doctors who were visiting and uh, were also starting to notice the problem we were, the challenge of caring of, for HIV patients then. And so uh, I ended up getting involved in this project that, will, that is called OpenMRS, but essentially was to build an open source medical record system initially just to take care of HIV AIDS patients. So that's wow. how I started, you know, programming, um, I started, I, I had programmed before, but then I got back into programming and I would go to this after hours lectures and team groups for building this system. And I got into this community and really sparked my interest in informatics. And so I'd say that 
you know, uh, my work has always been around solving a problem that I have or that I'm encountering. Hold on. So you built an entire open source MRS? Not build it alone, but I participated quite a bit in building it. And so actually it's still there. It's very widely adopted. It's called OpenMRS. It's used in over 40 countries. Oh my God. Started around Eldoret, which is where I was going to my medical school then. And so to have been around the first founders, the people who committed the first code and bugged them all the time. And you know, it's, it's interesting because today uh, all, if you're having an IT problem, I always say you should Google. And I, I think that's when I learned how to Google really, you know, asking questions. And, you know, there were challenges. For example, internet was never very consistent. So if you're having a problem today, I just quickly look it up. But that's when I got comfortable with figuring out how to ask the right question on Google and get the right answer. Because mm. <laughs> it was like you had limited attempts, maybe, or limited time. Yeah. And also, you, you know, earlier on, what I would do actually is, I, I don't have any of this anymore, but I would have a floppy drive mm -hmm. that I would, go, I would take with me to, you know, the cyber cafe. And I would have all the, you know, the questions that I was going to ask, you know, already preset. And so, you know, because, I mean, I, I wouldn't be there till the next day or some other time. And so I, you know, I needed to be able to ask all the questions, download all the possible answers, and then go back and sort of offline, uh, you know, review them and try and move on. So, I mean, programming then was a lot more difficult than now. And even though now my shift, you know, my focus has shifted because I, I love interdisciplinary work. I work with multiple people. And so I don't feel that I need to program every day, but, but that's how I really got into programming and, and, I don't know that I'm good at it, but that's, that's how I got into it. That's so cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I remember in that talk, he was saying something about, there's like a huge Excel sheet that yeah. um, I guess you figured out a solution for. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that story? Yeah. So, you know, uh, initially it's, uh, it, it may be a little difficult if you haven't had those older computers, but you know, the RAM, the memory was very, very limited. You know, it's crazy now, our phones are so powerful and, be and better than those computers. And so the, the way to limit, and because if you think about how much you load on the memory, you know, usually RAM and, uh, and how much, you know, like computation you can put on it, that limited the number of rows that your Excel spreadsheet could have. You know, now we have unlimited rows. And so from there on, initial patients were recorded in an Excel spreadsheet. Then it became important to migrate to an access database, which had the same limitation. Then at that point, it created a need because we were going through a pandemic, right? So like COVID now. And so you'd have to be really like stepping it up. You're entering many patients and, and you need just better technology to be able to track all the patients. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you had to have all these thousands of patients who are sick now, you'd have to have a, a more robust system. And so that's how I, we, I ended up into this group that was starting to build what would be uh, open MRS. Mm, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, how did you go from, you know, open MRS to now like your present day interest in machine learning? You know, again, same, same thing. Uh, what I love about OpenMRS has really been the community. And, you know, I realized this, that I became very impartial to technology. I love technology, but it's always for me been a, a, a task, you know, a task, uh, something to tackle a task. You know, it's like a pen that you have or a laptop mm, that you have. A tool, huh? Uh, yeah, exactly. So that's been my, my, my relationship with technology uh, throughout. And so um, when... You know, when I went to residency, I was very lucky. I went to Indiana University and uh, my program director then, Dr. Kaikam, was recognized that informatics was a very critical portion of who I was. And, you know, I don't know about your, you know, your residency program, but if you're a large team, then it's easy to cover clinical surveys and you can have a little bit of time, you know, so you're mm -hmm. not on call every other day. And so that, I, I really pivoted that extra time to work on informatics, you know? Mm. And so, uh, just sort of the same thing, um, you know, in around my third, fourth year, you know, that's when around Geoff Hinton, who is considered one of the fathers of deep planning was saying, you know, 
let's not train radiologists, you're like coyotes, you know, they, we have no need for radiologists. And so it set up this massive panic, you know, of people getting interested in radiology. And so, you know, when I saw that, I had never done any machine learning project. And I was like, well, I guess I'd rather find out what this is, you know. Mm -hmm. Just planning. I'd never done any deep planning project. And so, uh, luckily, one of probably um, the one of the biggest resources I, I encourage people to look at is Jeremy Howard. And we ended up, um, I ended up taking his class. You know, Jeremy and Howard? Is it an online yeah. course or? Yeah, so it's called Fast AI. It's a fantastic. Oh, Fast AI. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm so actually going to write that down. Yeah, and we, when, when he started, the first like few minutes, we wrote code and it only took, so initially I was a, you know, as a Java programmer, but I'd slowly started shifting to Python. And when we wrote like four lines of code and we were building a classifier, I think it was cats and, cats and dogs. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is, I mean, I can see why people are, you know, concerned because it's, you're writing two or three lines of code and now you can start to see results. And wow. so I got very interested and interested. And he has this approach of, you know, teaching without, without inter intimidation. Actually, one of his books that I have, it's, um, you know, get started with machine learning without a PhD you know, and, and it's a fantastic group. It's a free resource for anyone to get involved. And so I started following up his courses, started educating myself more. And then I found myself in this role of the ACR at the American College of Radiology resident and fellow section, where I, we started up starting a journal club where we would bring clinicians and would bring scientists to a common ground to talk about uh, machine learning. And I ended up learning quite a bit uh, during that time and getting better. And so uh, I also got to know a lot of people. I started programming and I just picked up the machine learning, the deep learning concepts. And I still do, I still learn every day. I, like I told you, we have, I think we're on week five of a book club. Mm, that we're, mm -hmm. um, I, I run here from Emory, just in the same thing because this field changes so fast. And so I would say that uh, I just found myself again, right place, right time this technology was concerning and I had already started working, volunteering for the Society of Imaging Informatics in Medicine, SIM, which is a great society and segue to get into informatics. And, you know, and then the ACR around then I was representing my class in the, Indiana has a very strong ACR chapter. And so they, the very resident focus and they sponsor residents to attend. So I found myself again in this, uh, situation and picked it up and so i see machine learning still the same way the, 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 my love for around i would say the one sentence you know technology i've always loved the people if, if it's about patient care it's um the you know the doctors who use the technology and understanding how they use it the patients who you know get care through the technology and the communities that build the technology and so you know because i i think it's very few technologies that save lives you know mm. and so, I see it now as a way to solve problems again, you know, big data sets, curation of big data sets for research, uh, looking at bias and, you know, right now, and or looking at new questions that I wouldn't have been able to answer without uh, the processing power and uh, enabling of computer vision and natural language processing. Yeah, I was wondering um, if we could talk more about like, the specific kind of research that you're interested in? Like, I think, is, is bias one of the topics you're particularly interested in? Yeah, so um, what, what we have here, when I came here, and it's not very usual in radiology to do this, I had helped a really close friend of mine in Indiana set up a lab. And I, I loved this idea of seeing students and being the last mile, like reaching out to people who would really not have the opportunity and just have seeing them grow. I mean, that, that really, uh, brings a lot of satisfaction to me. And so when I came to Emory, uh, one of the things I asked was to set up a lab. And it turns out it's not that complicated because they started off virtually. Uh, we just created our picture collage and it's amazing. <laughs> We've had so many students and I wow. just realized how much we had grown till we made this, you know, this collage. And so when I came here, we started a lab here. Uh, I also got here... Uh, when another 
you know, very close collaborator of mine got hired here. And, and so we were this sort of three, four physicians at this almost the same early level. And we ended up, you know, I, I just did the things about like how to run a lab, weekly meetings, you know, coming up with projects. So our lab does a big, big, big wide variety of, of topics, you know, from data set curation to machine learning, uh, natural language processing, and then implementation. What I, you know, Judy, uh, you know, I'm interested in is how AI works in real life. So we have quite some trials that we'll be starting to do. So if any of your listeners wants to participate, please reach out. That's how you, so for example, one of the projects we are doing is saying, imagine if I could, if I could create, you know, I could create agency in the machine learning, uh, you know, model. And so what that means is that right now we think of machine learning as, you know, as a computer system, like something amorphous, right? But when you create agency, you make it like, like a person, right? An mm-hmm. agent. And so if you had um, an agent as a radiology resident, and you, you know, you learn a lot by apprenticeship, you know, you, you go, you sit down at a workstation, you review cases, you go back and keep learning that way. And I mean, of all the specialties where it doesn't matter from the first day of radiology residency, you start again learning from scratch. And so, uh, what if you train machine learning in the same way? And so this is something that we call, you know, like a mach- man-machine partnership. Oh, where wow. we and so what, what we've done now, we're creating the infrastructure to be able to do that. But, and, and now we're moving to the sort of like the, the, this joint learning. So you can imagine if you're a first year resident, what bothered me most about a triple face CT scan was really to identify the, the faces of the scan and put them on the correct hanging protocol so that I can start to read them. When I moved on to a senior resident, what I needed to do was say, is this lesion new or old? You know, has it grown bigger or it's the same? So you can imagine if you're interacting with AI at that level, the AI system should not be telling you these are the faces of scanning. You already know that. It should be telling you these are the volumes and these are, you know, doing image co-registration. And now as an interventional radiologist, when I look at an, an MRI or a C- triple face CT scan, I'm trying to figure out how is it going to shorten my procedure time? What mm-hmm. catheter are we using because of the takeoff? You know, what wow. best, imagine one day if we have virtual angiograms that I can just click, what if I put my catheter here? What type of enhancement will I see? And so these different learning needs are what personally drive my interest in studying how, uh, radiologists and machine learning work as a partnership and they learn together and in the if we are able to even do half of the work that we want to do in this project then you could imagine in a future where i would say look these are the small agents for all the first years and look all the first years are okay they've seen all these studies except one who's not seen a dissection and what if intelligently you presented you know you you presented uh uh what do you call it a, a study in their work list that showed, oh, hey, you have this new study, but it's not necessarily because you're reading it for a patient, but you're reading it because we want to make sure your skills are the same. And mm-hmm. so the idea of then if you start to think about how AI and technology and human beings work, then you look at trust, you look at explainability, right? So I find myself doing a lot of inference, which is just basically testing the performance of AI models. So I do spend quite a bit of time building the infrastructure to do such testing. And then number two is um, I am very fascinated with bias and performance in real life. I think right now this is a, a big uh, area of interest because we're going through two pandemics, one of COVID and one of social injustice, you know, mm-hmm. more recognition yeah. of social injustice. And so you find things that, for example, we just finished some work where we looked at the, and not, not necessarily, you know, medical imaging, but we looked at the scoring systems within the ICU. Now the senior radiology residents who listen to your podcast will not have no idea of what this means because we completely forget about those. But if you did an ICU rotation, then you must know about the Apache scores, OASIS scores, and those are used to determine severity of disease for patients. And so we did this experiment where we looked at how these scores perform across different ethnicities. And we found mm-hmm. that they're you know, if you have a high score for David and a high score for Judy, it just means they're both sick people. But if you, uh, 
if you start to see the calibration, which means that this cause of a predict mortality for black patients and Hispanic patients. Mm. And so what is that important? We are now in the era of COVID. We are in the era where rationing is not unusual or unthought of because we don't have enough resources. And if we are rationing, then we cannot, you know, then, then at that point you may, if you have one ICU bed, you may say, I'm not going to give it to the person who's most likely going to die. I'm going to uh. give it to of survival and if you, you if you're relying if you're relying on this cause then you get a problem because the calibration is poor yeah you know? yeah. yeah so so around the, like this this continuum of how machines work how their performance works how do they work on new data sets uh, i think will be my contribution to the field of uh, medical ai yeah that makes me think of a, a study that was recently published where they found that for a lot of like the, the data sets used in medical AI, they all come from three cities, San Francisco, yeah. Um, yeah. Boston, was- and New York. Yeah. And you know, it's like, you can't, you can't generalize to the rest of the U S based off of those three cities. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm intimately involved in data sets. We have some, a couple of projects on those. Yeah. What do you think is a good way to like, how do we, combat this you know this bias should we just try and how do we like diversify these data sets i think people need to collect more data sets and this this is a good segue for people who get so intimidated that you need to be you know uh 10x engineer to get into ai machine learning i think that's not the case you need to understand the principles but i think this data set curation it's expensive it's difficult you know there are many laws that surround data set curation uh, including HIPAA. And mm-hmm. so I think that we have to create incentives where people are more incentivized to create and release data for the social good. So mm-hmm. that's that most people would say that, well, we should create them for companies, but I, I disagree. You know, we should create them to release for social good. Yeah. And I feel like this should be funded, you know, this should, they should Absolutely. fund grants that are doing this. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, we're in a dangerous stage where if we don't start curating this data, then maybe it will never get done, you know, because people are just going to use data for, that has been already curated that's very homogenous and kind of skewed towards a certain population. And then that's going to drive care. And then that's, you know, it's going to further propagate these inequalities. Mm-hmm. But also remember, it's not just that. It's, it's also being humble to, to be honest and say that we have those biases in real life right so mm-hmm. we are collecting it's also not by it's not like free of bias you know yeah. we know that some people that already already collect data you know from you know like people have published you know mortality of cirrhosis in low income you know among low-income uh, patients or something like that or so some some of these places are already collect data in a biased way and so i think we just have to it's a whole process of cleaning up where mm-hmm. we go we learn and, and the problem here is that we don't know what we don't know you know yeah and so yeah. you know we go out we learn and and this data saturation should be uh, i think highly uh, incentivized because I do believe that's what's going to move the, the the path forward. I don't think that Judy or my lab will come up with a new model, you know, learning technique like UNET or something that really changes the, the world because I think there are very smart engineers at Facebook, Google, Amazon that do this. And you can, if you see the trend is that these models that Google uses in their own offices are now released for in the public and the open source, you know, with the TensorFlow system ecosystem and the PyTorch ecosystem. Mm-hmm. What they're not able to do, I don't I do not believe that a big company will be able to do is properly, you know, curate a data set because that requires a lot of patience. You have to pay for people, right? Yeah. Or people who are interested, you have to figure out what's in it for them, you know, and then how do you make it generalized for use? I mean so this is a this is a good space to get into, but it's very, I, th- I think it requires still a little bit of incentivizing for people to say, you know what, true, I'm not building the, the best model that does all these cool things, but I'm making sure that you can be able to build AI that is safe for patient needs. Mm-hmm. 
this past summer, actually, I worked on a data set curation, or it was a annotation and labeling of uh, kidney cancer. Uh, and uh, I think this year, because we've released a previous iteration of this data set, but it was very simple, you know, it was just like outline. But I think this year we're actually going to include like demographic information about the, um, you know, different tumors and kidneys involved. Awesome. Which That's is like amazing. a big step forward. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not the work. It's, I call it the plumbing work. It's not very highly rewarded, but it's very important for a good foundation of the house. Mm, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. 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 I, I almost feel like it's like, it's even harder because there's a lot of um, problems, not with like the previous generation, but you know, just in the way that maybe science was conducted in the past where I, I don't know, people maybe, I don't know, maybe there wasn't as much cognizance of this or recognition of this problem. You know, like, for example, like right now in, in my, in our medical school curriculum, um, there's a lot of this talk about eliminating race-based medicine, you know, like mm -hmm. the GFR for mm -hmm. black patients versus non-black patients and um, how they're saying like, we shouldn't be using uh, a different GFR for, you know, for black people versus non-black people because, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's interesting seeing how like the curriculum has been changing and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see, glad to see that. Yeah. I think we still have a long way to go, still need to do a lot of work. Oh yeah. But I agree with you. At least we are starting to do the work, you know? That's true. That's true. Yeah. At least it's like, it's now part of the things that we know instead of the things that we don't know that we don't know. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So in addition to the, the bias, what other, what other kinds of projects are you working on? So we're doing some work on federated learning where we're just saying that we can train a model on multiple, you know, institution data. Uh, this is through the ACR, the American College of Radiology, that enables us to do this type through the, the ACR AI lab. Uh, we also have, I would say that we have... Um, Could you give us a brief like overview of federated learning and, and what that means? Learning is where you, you, there are many versions, but I would say the simplified is that you, you do not exchange the data across institutions. Mm -hmm. Is you're just shifting, um, you're just shifting your data from one place to another, your model weights and, uh, you know, the numbers from one place to another to allow you to be able to have a joint learning. Okay. So, mm -hmm. You can imagine if I send you my model, let's say we're building a model for pneumothorax, I send it to you, you train it a little bit, you bring back the model. So I'm not seeing your data, but I'm getting the advantage of that my model was trained on your data. Then I train it on memory data, then I move it to MTH, and then we move it to UCSF. Oh, I see what you mean. We'll have a model that, that, that the thought is that you'd have a model that performs well because it's seen var a variety of data. I'm curious, how do you make sure that, because I'm sure every different institution has a different format of data, right? Or maybe the way they take the photos is a little different. Yeah, you, I mean, most of the work for machine learning is the model, is the pipeline curation for the data set. Mm. You know, so you have to spend quite a bit of time to make the, you know, the data into a form that can be understood and uh, that makes sense for, like, makes sense for everyone. You know, yeah, like, I, I guess what I mean is, yeah, like, how do you homogenize that or standardize that so that it's the different really homogenized, you just have to, because most of the time you just have to say, these are the labels that I want. This is the format that I want. And then mm. someone curate that data. Mm. Yeah. You know, they, it's not like I'm going to just bring your model and be like, hey, I trained. No, you have to do some work before it's super helpful. You, you got to like tweak the data a little bit. Yeah. Clean it up. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that with like the, as you add more institutions, does the model become more accurate or does it become less powerful? Uh, usually models that are trained on heterogeneous data generalize more. What that means is that they perform better on data that they haven't seen before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you, that's the main advantage, right? Because you don't want to end up with a model that only works on your own institutional data set. Yeah. You know, yeah, that, that's why people do federated learning. Mm. 
yeah, so that you end up with an institute, you know, a model that generalizes more on multiple institutions. Mm, I see. Mm -hmm. What about, uh, I'm curious, you know, do you have a, a dream project that you'd want to work on if you could? <laughs> right now? Yeah. I don't have my, my project right now. I'm not so sure that I miss so much. Because, you know, when you're faculty and you grow your team, you kind of get to work on projects. I, I mean, it's a big principle of mine, uh, choosing projects that I enjoy working on, you know? Mm. Oh, okay. so, uh -huh. Yeah, so, so I feel like any project that I want to do now, I can do, you know, because we have a, a good team here. Um, yeah. And tell you some of the projects that I'm excited about right now. So we're looking at one project where we're looking at trust and tensions in the notes as a marker for suffering in end of life. I think that's been very, very eye-opening for someone like mm -hmm. me. Uh, and that's because to look at how, you know, when there's conflict in the family and you can start to see how sort of uh, racial differences differ with sort of end of life care decisions and what oh, those wow. people trust there. Yeah. Uh, this is maybe interesting to me because as an interventional radiologist, I take care of patients with postpartum hemorrhage and you know, even the most wealthy female, Beyonce, when she's giving birth, she has a very, very high rate of death just mm. because she's black and irrespective of her education. Because if she says, if she says a complaint, usually most of those complaints are ignored. And wow. the provider perceptions are big in terms of uh, predicting maternal outcomes, you know? And mm. so to be able to start to use machine learning, to be able to do like this sentiment analysis, to study how you, you know, when you're a medical student, you may not realize some of the things you document, how they label people, you know, they become non-compliant or, you know, mm -hmm. and there's always a history, you know, behind these things, uh, I think is very fascinating for me because I, I, I work in the county hospital for Atlanta. So uh, these are challenges that I face with every, they, you know, this uh, lack of belief of patients or, you know, claim that they're malingering or, you uh -huh. know, such, such components. And so to be able to do this uh, for me has been uh, fantastic. Um, I would say that the other uh, area of things that I'm excited about is this sort of, uh, could you start, you know, people have always said that there, so one is around utilization using machine learning to, as an operational tool, you know, as an interventional radiologist, you know, you have to do practice building. Most people don't know what we do. You have to, uh, you know, sometimes you just want like a dashboard from a pilot view to figure out, you know, what's coming along my way, right? So that you can plan. So it's, I think, uh, crazy that we are not able to know that, well, five people had, you know, endoscopies today, they, they're on PPI, you know, they're on, on a, a PPI drip, but they're still dropping their hemoglobin, which means most likely they're gonna be an emergency, you know? Mm. Or the person had this procedure, which usually is followed by an IR procedure. And so that gives you a, a much better transparency to the system. And so I'm, I'm fascinated about building such technologies. We're just starting one where we're doing that for venous access. And then uh, also this merging of, you know, electronic or clinical data and imaging data is something that we're doing a lot of. Uh, specifically now we're exploring a project around osteoarthritis along the same line. What do you mean by merging clinical and imaging data? So most of the time you either treat imaging data separately, for example, detect pneumothorax or detect pneumonia, but you know, uh, you could detect other things from a clinical point of view, clinical notes, labs, by oh you know, and other things, pre-existing conditions and their impact. That kind of reminds me of the, the sentiment analysis that you were talking about earlier. Uh, so I was wondering how um, could you give, uh, could you talk a bit more about that? Like, you know, like would your, would your algorithm be like looking for instances of like provider bias? No, um, you mentioned, that's what we decided, where people are fighting. It would what, sorry? Where people are fighting tension. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so would it be like retroactive or kind of retrospective, you know, like yeah. looking at like past cases? We're going to start retrospective, but ultimately we'll end up prospective validation mm. and testing it in a new institution too still. 
That's cool. I was wondering, so I feel like oftentimes with new technology, it can either exacerbate inequalities or, you know, the, the promise is always like, oh, it'll help. It'll help with these biases. It'll help with, you know, this, uh, the dis- disparities in medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think we can make sure that AI doesn't worsen the disparities? Uh, I think we have a lot of work to do for that. I mean, not just medicine, right? We know that police are using AI for uh, to predict repeat offenders, to determine bail. So it's just how AI is deployed in society. So mm-hmm. we have, yeah, I mean, I think some people have done quite a bit on education. I mean, there are people who have spent quite some time, not, not in medicine, but other places where they do this. And uh, I think their work is super important to advance this field. You know, so I think some of the work done by a good friend of mine, that's someone I really respect, Tim Nitt and Joy, really is the one that found that, you know, IBM, Google, and Amazon technology did poorly for black face recognition. So, I mean, mm-hmm. so I think this, we are driven usually by profit incentive and money, but, you know, now we are not talking about it because we have a moratorium of people not selling the technology. But it's all about money, you know? And so uh, we have to have diversity in the people who build these technologies, diversity in the data set that we collect from these technologies, and also these continuous evaluations and uh, opening the black boxes to figure out how they work. So a lot of work is required, you know, requires a lot of society change. I don't think it's one person who can do this work, but I think it's necessary. So what would you say to, you know, like a young med student or like young early career physician, like if they wanted to get involved in this kind of work, how could they start? Um, so I think, first of all, the societies are getting very good at providing resources for this. So uh, RSNA, ACR, most importantly, SIM. SIM is a very, very good meeting. You really, it's very collegial. You get to learn a lot. So I think I would say that join these societies as a first step. Uh, then there are many faces of people who are involved in machine learning. If you want to dive in or you're coming in with a computer engineering background, then you should really get in into the weeds. I would recommend that you work with a team. I, I find that that kind of grows your mind and ideas, mm. you know, and uh, that way you're able also to be a little productive. You know, when you're alone, it's, I think, very difficult. Some people like it, but I, I've really found that that, that mode works, you know? And then I would say that uh, at least try and, I think that if you're looking for a course to do, I would say the first AI is a great course. Uh, right now we're using a different book for hands-on machine learning with scikit-learn. It's really good for the fundamentals. That's the book club that, that I run. And we're going through every chapter, you know, and, and just going through the concepts of, of machine learning. And I think it's been very helpful even for my students who are much more advanced and already build models. You know, they found it super helpful because, like I said, you could find code anywhere and just assemble it and, and get some prediction. But if you want to have a basic understanding, I thought this was a good fundamental book. And uh, if you have to figure out your learning style. Mine is around problem-based learning. Mm-hmm. I always pick a challenge and then work on it. And I feel that, that I've ended up getting better by doing it that way. Uh, I don't think you should be intimidated. You do not need to go learn programming. Uh, you know, you just need to have interest and align yourself with people who, because, you know, remember, it's easy to teach you how to program. It's very hard to teach an engineer medical school. You just mm-hmm. don't realize what you know till you're in a situation and you're like, this is what I would do. And it comes so naturally. If, I mean, when you're a radiology resident, it's usually the first night you're on call alone and the surgeon comes in and says, am I going to the OR or not? And you panic and you're like, but I know, no, you know, and, and you start doubting yourself until the next day they come and it's like, oh yeah, this is what we found. Thank you. And it just really improves your confidence. And so I would say find, find your people to work with. You know, and, and there are many groups right now and many teams that you can join in and your clinical, ex- don't, don't undersell your clinical expertise. It's super important and required for machine learning. Mm. Yeah, the, um, so I'm part of a group called the Medicine and Machine Learning Club of the University of Minnesota. Our logo, or mm. our, um, our phrase is 
faster alone, further together. That's our motto. I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. And that's kind of our philosophy because I feel like you're right. It's just, it's, it's much more fun and much easier to just do it together. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We have students from all over the place and, and that's been, I mean, it's been great. I have students from Georgia Tech. I have some from MRE uh, Computer Science. We have some from India. We have some from some wow. Africa. And, you know, we have a student from Pakistan and it's been fantastic to just see them grow and learn. And, you know, they, they start to challenge you. If you create the right environment for them, they do. And that's amazing. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk more about like the team you currently have and how did you assemble them? Um, is yeah. it from like the open MRS days or more no. recently? Oh, recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just started saying these are the works we did. I, I did focus uh, on more basic uh, things to help people with. Uh, what I mean is that no one, if I invite you to work on a project, you don't want to start from scratch, you know? So I have quite a number of IRBs that I, I, I send for approval. And then I also have quite a number of I curate the data sets. If I have the same thing, like I said, I work on projects that I enjoy. And if I have a curiosity, I'll just write it down, start, um, you know, collecting the, the RB, starting to figure out if the feasibility. So I do that, you know, the not joy, like, you know, prestigious work beforehand. So when you come in, the data is ready and everything is ready so you're just focusing yourself you know making sure we have enough computation to work on and mm -hmm. so that health when that's maybe been fundamentally important for keeping our lab going and then you know like i said i mean you also said it, it's very hard to work alone so my co-director co harry trivedi who's an er radiologist but trained in msk has been very very supportive because when i'm off you know, because I'm very clinically intense, then, you know, he's running everything else. So we, we our projects are very meshed together, which mm -hmm. is because when I'm, I'm maybe I'm just dying from clinical work, I know my projects still go on. And so that, I think they bring new perspective. You end up writing better papers, end up learning more, which is fundamentally what I love more. Yeah, how do you balance the clinic, clinical work and the the, cl the coding work? Yeah, so I, I don't actively code now. I rarely uh -huh. code. Maybe just for a few things that I have to because I have a good team now that they do that. So most of the time I'm just looking through the code and looking through at the results and wow. telling them next, yeah. But I guess in like a given week, like how, how would you split like clinical time versus so, like managing your team? It was very, very generous to me. Uh, most of the time, uh, so so I spend maybe one or two days doing informatics. But oh, if nice. you're an academic in institution, if you have an academic job, you'll get one academic day most of the time. And so you can use that for, so informatics is my research. And so that's what I do. That must be tough to only have one academic day per week to work on your informatics stuff. Yeah, so you have to multiply the time. And you multiply it by having more people. <laughs> mm, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, we have some questions that we ask every guest. Uh, the first one would be, uh, what do you expect is the future of AI in medicine? And where will we be in 10 to 20 years? I think uh, the future is very hard to predict, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but... I think that definitely we would live with AI, whether you in medicine or in just in our lives, you know? Uh, I think AI, personally, I see bigger gains get obtained in robotics mm. and medicine. And that's because if you look at open surgery, that's a dying art. You know, most, I mean, most surgeries now pretty minimal, you know, minimal invasive, requires a lot of robotics. So I think that's an interesting space to watch. Uh, I see that as an interventional radiologist, you know, could you have something that computes the biopsy and the trajectory and, you know, and I don't think that that's too far-fetched to think about. Wow. You know, I see a role, 
you know, I know that VZI got approved uh, for stroke care. Yeah. I don't know that, and that was also very surprising, but I don't know. I mean, not got approved, they got approved for reimbursement. Reimbursement, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I see, uh, you know, because, because most, most of the things that are out there, uh, I see them, if you're not supporting better care or better efficiency, I don't know that you're going to get, it's going to be sustainable. Because if you think about how many apps fight for your attention, can you imagine being that way as a doctor? Like having to use 50 apps? I mean, it would be crazy. It would be yeah. too much. Yeah. I don't expect a replacement, but I do anticipate the type of job will change. Mm. You know? Um, and, you know, yeah, that that would be my not very... Uh, my wishy-washy prediction because I, I think it's very hard to predict the future. The technology is changing. The people who have these technologies when you attend their conferences, and I encourage you to do it, especially because everything is virtual now. You can watch Facebook F8, developer conference. You can watch Google IO, which is the developer and uh, the Amazon one. And you'll see that the big people, the big names of their companies are the ones who come out to give these announcements for healthcare. So for me, that means that they are paying attention. They already have a lot of technology and a lot of secrecy. So if they are paying attention to this, you know, it means it's, they're, they're making either remarkable gains or you know, there's something that's going on that maybe the, to, the, to the normal person may not be very obvious you know and so i i think um you know right now with covid uh we'll see a boom in telemedicine you know oh, yeah. and so that has nothing necessarily to do with ai but i think this is something that we'll see a big growth in uh now i was wondering uh do you have any advice that you would want or if what advice would you give to your 25 year old self well um Life is too short. <laughs> you should do things that you love. I, I think, um, you know, when it comes to, I, I've been very, very lucky to still find a lot of joy in the work that I do, you know, and I think, you know, you should at least either work with fantastic people or you could have everything, but you could, you should either work with fantastic people or have uh, absolute joy from the work that you do. And I, I, I mean, on my informatics days, I'm not in scrubs. I'm in my t-shirt and I, I thoroughly enjoy those days, you know, and I still have the same love for patient care through intervention or radiology the same way. And I see how those two intersect. And so, you know, I think sometimes you spend too much time worrying and figuring out so much noise, but, you know, only you can determine your path, you know, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and you should follow it. You know, when, when I started out, if you had interest like informatics, people kind of frowned upon it. But I'm In telling, radiology or? Yeah, even, yeah, even my, my letter of, my, letter of um, my personal statement during residency applications, you know, you, you, it will seem like you're not serious enough, but now it's such a useful skill. I mean, they're very rare, very few radiologists who truly understand informatics. So it's still mm. a commodity in terms of a skill that people are looking for. But, you know, I think I, I just stuck to it because I liked it and it, it brought personal satisfaction. And so you should pick those things that, you know, that, that bring joy. In a more sort of maybe more adulty message i would say that maybe one of the best examples i've had of sort of figuring out what to do with your life earlier on i was very very curious i, I did everything and i absolutely love it i did it because i i enjoyed it and i loved to learn and then with time i started choosing what was interesting to me and my time and what i realized is that you know you know, that, that approach was this essence of curiosity of lifelong learning brought me to many, many people. And ultimately, I ended up making lots of friends all over the world, you know, and, and it was just, I'm really not very, I don't think it's very easy for me to make friends, but this is how I ended up making friends. And I would say that um, ultimately that, you know, you should build your network before you need it. 
you know sometimes mm. you get because you're just trying you, you have your own short-term goal and that's okay but when you're your authentic self i mean it's easy for you and uh, i think more doors open up for you mm, that's great advice to build, build your network before you need it yeah i like that wow and i, I guess our, our last question for fun is uh what's your favorite food from your hometown so we Kenyans love to eat meat a lot so we eat a lot of goat meat so if you can that sounds good yeah if you came home uh we would uh we we slaughter goats a lot as a ceremony and then we make a kenyan version of what would be equivalent to pico uh-huh and pico what's it called pico, like the pico de gallo the like oh the, okay yeah 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 yeah. so it's called kachumbari mm-hmm. and also eaten with this pound cornmeal. It has very, it's actually a very common food in Africa. Oh, I think I've had the pound cornmeal. The, um, it, you do it with your hands, right? Yes. I've had it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's called ugali in Kenya and sima in some of the countries, but fufu, it's, it's, fufu, yeah, it's, yeah. it's mm-hmm. all over. But that would be the meal that uh, maybe is very Kenyan-like. Uh, mm. I, I don't much meat, red meat as now, but that that's like, even when I go home, that that's, that's something that has to happen. Is there a good Kenyan food in Atlanta? Actually, no. Mm. I'm very that's disappointed. Uh, we have lots of good Ethiopian food here. I actually found a, a truly authentic Ethiopian food through an Ethiopian friend. And it was amazing because also Kenya has very, very good Ethiopian food because of the Ethiopian refugees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of them but it was great but um i really enjoyed it but we don't have kenyan food i mean i think most kenyan food is in dc where they have like swahili village and you mm. get what i'm saying the nyamachoma the ghost the the barbecue goat meat and oh, that sounds so good yeah it's making me hungry <laughs> wow well uh i guess that pretty much wraps it up with our interview today, Dr. Kachoya. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, yeah, good luck with this. I think it's an amazing initiative that you're doing. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I think, uh, I think the students love hearing about your research and also, you know, maybe uh, people who are looking for a postdoc can reach out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I definitely learned a lot about like, you know, the current state of, you know, like how we're combating bias in AI and and all that. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much.